Happy Advent. Those of you who are aware of what Advent is, you will know that today is the first Sunday of Advent, and therefore it is the first Sunday of the new year, according to the Christian calendar. I'll explain what all that means here in a minute. Uh, today is not the first Sunday of Advent for the Duncan kids. It's Pie Sunday, as Lauren was referring to. So I woke up this morning, and I was in the kitchen, and Izzy runs over to me, and he says, Dad, guess what today is? And I said, it's Advent. And he says, no, it's Pie Sunday. <laughs> pie Sunday. And we created a monster with Pie Sunday, babe. Several years ago, we said, why don't we do something to get everybody together to hang out? Because, you know, we don't eat enough pie on Thanksgiving Day or the day after or on Rivalry Saturday. We don't eat enough pie. Like, we, we should add to it and have a Pie Sunday, right? But it's been something now that we've done for probably over 10 years, and it's just an opportunity for us to connect and hang out over pie. So uh, hang out with us a little bit after service. Church, Christ is risen. risen Amen. And that might seem a little odd to say that Christ is risen on the first day of Advent. And part of that is because Christ's coming really serves no purpose unless Christ was crucified and unless he was risen from the dead. And so for those of you who may not be familiar with the word Advent or the season of Advent, um, we are starting a new series which actually falls in line with the liturgical church calendar today. Today is the first Sunday of the season of Advent. And if you're anything like me, you might have grown up without knowing what that is at all. I come from a Pentecostal charismatic tradition, and we did not celebrate Advent. In fact, I had no idea what the word meant even having gone through eight years of schooling and four years of seminary, it wasn't until my good friend Jonathan Swindle came and said, you know, there's a different way we could do this whole Christmas thing, right? And he began to introduce me to the historical, the ancient historical liturgical church calendar, which for, guys, hundreds of years, uh, the early church adopted a practice of actually being very thoughtful and very meaningful in the way they approach Christ's birth. And that is the season of Advent. So what is Advent exactly? Number one, it is a holy season that precedes Christmas. Growing up, there were times and seasons of my life when, unbeknownst to me, I was actually being more formed by the culture of Christmas, what the culture was describing and defining the season of Christmas to be, than I was being formed as a Christian who learned how to anticipate the arrival of Christ. And therefore, being formed by the culture, Christmas became all about me as an only child. Christmas became all about uh, what I wanted or what I could get or what I didn't get uh, or what I didn't have enough of. And I carried that all the way into even my teen years. And I'm so grateful that within the wisdom of the church that there are actually seasons that mark time to help form us to not be a people that consume, but be a people that receive from God and are formed into greater Christ-likeness because of who he is and because of what he's done in the earth. So Advent is a holy season that precedes Christmas. It is the beginning of the Christian calendar, which is the start of the new year, which very simply means that it is a way of keeping time. There are all kinds of ways to keep time. Keeping time defines us. Keeping time reveals our values. If I look at your calendar and if I look at your, your day timer, where did that come from? If I look at your Franklin Covey day timer, if I look at your Microsoft Outlook, right, um, you, you will reveal to me or you reveal to yourself what's valuable to you. And keeping time not only defines us and identifies us, it reveals 
what is valuable to us. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the Christian calendar, it begins with Advent, which are the four Sundays and the time in between that precedes Christmas. The next marker point in the Christian calendar is Christmas Day. And then we enter into what is called Christmas Tide, not Christmas time, but Christmas Tide, which is the 12 days of Christmas. Y'all all thought that was just a fun, annoying song, but it was actually a reference to the season, the liturgical season of Christmas, wherein in those 12 days, we are still reflecting on the goodness of God coming to us in the incarnate Christ, the man Christ Jesus. Christmas tide leads us into a season called Epiphany. Epiphany very simply means revealing, and that is where we have this understanding. It's the season of revelation that this man that was born to us is not an ordinary man. He is, in fact, the king of kings. And in the season of Epiphany, we reflect on who God is as the word made flesh and is the son of God. And then that season leads us into Lent which isn't the funnest of seasons. Lent is the 40 days that precede Palm Sunday, and that's the season of time marked by Ash Wednesday where we learn how to walk with Christ in his journey to the cross. And then obviously that takes us into Holy Week where we walk into Good Friday, Easter Sunday, and then we go into Easter Tide, which is another period of time that takes us to Pentecost Sunday. This is the church calendar. After Pentecost Sunday, from that time right around the end of May into June, up until now, we have been living in what's called ordinary time, where we learn that God is faithful and that God is present and that God is work in the quiet, seemingly boring and mundane moments of our life. God is still present and God is still work at work in the ordinary times and spaces of our lives. So... Let me talk with you here for a few moments about how we can participate with the spirit of Advent in the season of Advent. And the first thing I want to say about this very simply is, in the same way that the Sabbath was made for mankind, Advent was made for mankind, mankind was not made for the Sabbath, mankind was not made for Advent. Are you hearing me when I say that? There are a lot of different ways that we can participate with this. You can light candles at home. You can go through devotionals on your own or with your family or with your roommates. But what I want to make sure is that we don't violate the spirit of the Sabbath because we're holding to the the law, the legalistic law of the Sabbath. The spirit of Advent, the season of Advent was meant to serve us, to prepare us, to prepare our hearts, not only for the first arrival of Jesus, but more importantly, perhaps, the second arrival arrival of Jesus, which we'll focus on more today here in a few minutes. So there's three things that we can do to help us participate with the spirit of the season. Number one, it's contemplation. That very simply means that the spirit of Advent calls us and invites us to slow down. And I I see that as a gift. In a season where things can ramp up and become really frenetic, how many of you, as you look back over Decembers of the past, You look at those seasons and you felt like you were more exhausted and more burned out, like you got to Christmas morning and maybe you were even a little anxious or frustrated or fatigued because of what the the consumeristic, drivenness spirit of this culture has turned the season of Christmas into. It's one party after another. It's one secret Santa after another. It's, you know, and there's all this pressure to perform and get things right and... uh, 
all those things can be good in their place, but the spirit of Advent beckons us to come away into quiet spaces. Advent begins, you may hear this phrase quite often, but Advent begins in the night or Advent begins in the dark. And I'm going to explain what that means here in a few minutes, but very simply, everything was quiet when Jesus of Nazareth was born. He was born into the quiet moments of Israel's longing for the Messiah. It's a season to contemplate. And what are we contemplating exactly? Well, we're contemplating three arrivals. The word Advent in the Latin very simply means arrival. And there are three types of arrivals that we step into. The first arrival is the first coming of Jesus. And you may notice that there was a different tenor in the songs that we sang today. I love the fact that we actually pulled that up a little bit and there was a lot of joy and excitement in the air. But traditionally, liturgically, historically, these two Sundays, the first two Sundays of the first four Sundays of Advent, have a little bit more of a somber tone. And the reason why that is is because we're identifying, we're entering into solidarity with the ancient longing of the people of Israel. Imagine, as Lauren and Eddie both said so well, imagine a people receiving a promise. You're going to have a Messiah who's going to come to you. Yeah, you're living in oppression right now. Yeah, you're being ruled by by world powers that are destructive to you and damaging to you. Yes, you're being enslaved by a people that are not your own. And yet, I want you to know, Israel, that I'm faithful to you and that I'm going to send you a Messiah. He's going to be a deliverer. He's going to be a great mighty king. He's going to come in the spirit of David. He's going to come like a lamb. And the people of Israel, for generations, they sat in that promise And they waited expectantly, they ached, and they longed for the arrival of Jesus. And so the first arrival of Advent is we actually step into the words, the songs, the prayers, the spirit of saying, come Jesus, we need you. The second arrival that we are preparing our hearts for is actually the second coming of Jesus. And again, as Pastor Eddie explained so marvelously this morning, we're actually sitting right in between two arrivals. We're sitting between Jesus' first coming as a baby, where he lived. Scripture says that he went about doing good, that he destroyed the works of the devil, that he laid his life down as a sacrifice for all of humanity. He was resurrected from the dead, ascended into heaven. And then we are in this space where he says, but I'm coming back again. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. Where I'm going, you soon will come as well. I am the way and the truth and the life. I go to prepare a place for you, and I am coming again to bring you back with me to where I am. I long for you to be with me where I am. I will come again. And we're in that space where our hearts can be shaped and our faith can be formed to live our lives in a state of readiness for the arrival of Jesus's return. But there's also a third arrival, and it's one that is a little less suspicious. It's the arrival of Jesus breaking into everyday moments of our lives. It's the now arrival that by the giving and the outpouring of God's spirit in our lives, we can see Jesus breaking in to just quiet, normal, mundane regular moments of our lives where we stop and go, oh, I think I saw God there. We find ourselves responding differently to our roommates or our bosses or our coworkers or our spouses or our children, and we go, oh my, I think, I think God broke in. I think he's transforming me. I think, I think there's revelation coming. 
I think my perspective is being changed. Ah, I see God arriving and encountering me and working in my life. So as we stop and we slow down, we begin to cut distractions away from our lives. We begin to contemplate and see God is here and God is arriving in every moment of our lives. The next thing that we can do is we can participate in the season of Advent, not only by contemplation, but by preparation. In fact, next week, we're going to be talking about how John the Baptist is a pretty critical figure in the season of Advent. Because in the same way that John the Baptist comes to prepare the way for the people of Israel to get their hearts ready for the first arrival of Jesus, we then step into that same spirit of announcement and with preparation, we prepare our hearts in repentance for the second coming of Christ. When the early church marked the four Sundays prior to Christmas as the season of Advent sometime in the fourth century, the intent was actually originally to create an opportunity for people to prepare their hearts for baptism. And so it became a time to focus and repent and reflect and relive the longing for Christ's arrival on earth. Thirdly, it's a season of anticipation. So we have contemplation, preparation, and anticipation. And at its root, Advent is a season of messianic anticipation. When Israel's ancient longing for the Messiah echoes deeply in our own hearts as we watch and as we pray for Christ to return. Advent is not merely a commemorative event or an anniversary. It is a yearly opportunity for us to consider the future. It's a yearly opportunity to form us to be a people that look for and long for Christ's return. So when is Advent? Again, Advent is the four Sundays leading up to Christmas. The first two weeks focus on the second coming of Christ. So I'm just going to give you a little bit of a contextual understanding here. Today, I'm going to talk about something that might seem out of place with the traditional spirit of Christmas, because I'm going to be talking about apocalyptic messianic passages about the second coming of Christ and the end times, to which you go, I thought this was supposed to be a pie Sunday, happy, festive, <laughs> joyous, ho, 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 mistletoe, right? Like, but this is traditionally the first Sunday of Advent focuses our hearts on saying, come thou long expected Jesus, return to the earth. Make us a people that are ready. Make us like the five wise virgins who not only had their lampstands, but they had oil in their lampstands, and the posture of their lives was a righteous expectation for the return of Christ. But you're going to see that there's going to be a change. There's going to be a shift in the tone on Advent Sunday 3, and that's where our songs are going to get happy again, right? Because we're going to shift our tone, and around that time, it's actually called the Sunday of Joy. And on this day, our themes of longing and repentance will give way to expectant delight. This is where you can expect joy to the world and songs that are like, ah, Christ, Christ is coming, it's about, it's about time, and you'll see that reflected in the spirit of the service. Why do we participate in Advent? Very, very quickly. For those of you who've attended New Life Next, you'll know that we have said that here at New Life Midtown, we mark ourselves with three primary distinctions. We are evangelical, we are charismatic, and we are an ancient historic people. 
And by evangelical, very simply, that means that we are a people who are Christ-centered by the faithful proclamation of the gospel. The gospel is the good news of who Jesus is and who we are because of who he is and what he's done. And that will always remain a centerpiece to who we are as a people. But we're also charismatic, which means that we believe that the spirit is alive and present and work right now and in every season of our lives, even in the dark seasons, even in the seasons where it feels like everything is falling apart, even in the seasons where it feels like, God, where are you? I'm angry, like Lauren said. We believe, if we believe in the Holy Spirit, we believe that he's not just present and available in the spectacular moments of our lives, that he's also available in the frustrating and quiet and disappointing seasons of our lives. He's just as work in those spaces, which Advent will continue to reinforce and teach us. But when we say that we're an ancient historic people, it means that the church, it is the company of all believers in all places throughout all time. And so we stand in the historical continuity with the work of the Spirit in the church from its very beginning. From the book of Acts chapter 2, when the church began, we're looking for patterns and principles that Jesus said, this is what marks the church, and we carry those into our formation even today, 2,000 years later. My hope is that in the next four weeks that we highlight the centrality of the gospel in our season of Advent, that we highlight the centrality of who Jesus is in our story, which is ultimately God's story, and that we bring to clarity the fact that the kingdom of God has come to the earth in Jesus Christ. My second hope is that we will allow the Spirit of God to shape us, and that he'll form us individually and as a community of people through these rhythms that I believe are Spirit-inspired as we partner with these Spirit-led rhythms. And finally, I hope that we participate with the Spirit of Advent and that we become a more prepared people, that our longing for Jesus, I pray that we encounter Jesus afresh and anew. I I pray that we begin to see ourselves not just as sons and daughters, which we are, but I pray that we even begin to start seeing ourselves as the bride of Christ, that we see that the love that God has for us is a passionate, deeply romantic love that he has. He loves you romantically. He loves you passionately and personally and fiercely. And that is one of the beauties of understanding who we are as the bride of Christ, right? We're not just servants. We're not slaves. We are sons. We are daughters. We're becoming friends of God. But God also calls us the bride of his son. And there's so much there to discover that hopefully in 2023, we'll begin to scratch back some more of that. I want to focus on two things today that I've already mentioned. I want to talk about our our longing for the first arrival of Jesus. I want to touch on those scriptures. And then I want to shift gears and I want to talk through some of our lectionary passages today that put our focus on the second coming of Jesus. And then we'll take this to the table. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Genesis chapter 3. In the beginning, we find that when God created all that we have around us and at the apex of his creation, he created mankind. And like any good parent, God gives boundaries to his children And like every good child, those children violated those boundaries. (laughs) And so the natural discipline or the natural consequence of that violation was actually a horrendous consequence of sin entering into every fabric and every fiber 
of society at large. And as again, as Pastor Eddie said, the earth itself has become subject. It's become bondage to decay, as Romans 8 says. And the earth itself is groaning under the weight and the force of the curse of sin that has come as a result of mankind's willful rebellion and disobedience to the wisdom of God. So when God shows up after this, this moment of disobedience, he then says, this is the effect of this, Genesis chapter 3. He says, so the Lord said to the serpent, because you've done this, because you've deceived mankind, you will be cursed above all livestock and all wild animals. And you will crawl on your belly, you'll eat dust all the days of your life. And the next verse says, and I will put enmity, division, I'll put strife between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And then God actually releases a prophetic promise right here. He speaks a messianic promise in the garden, the very beginning of time. I want you to think about this. So mankind is being corrected. He's being disciplined by God the Father. And God never, like we've said this before, God never punishes us. And he never does anything to bring shame or guilt upon us. All of his discipline is good and it's right and it's perfect. And it's birthed out of love. And here's one of the ways that you can distinguish the punishment of the enemy or natural consequence and the loving discipline and correction of God. There will always be hope in the discipline of God. He'll never leave you in the pain of your own brokenness. And this is the hope that God gives. He says... He will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Do you know what he's talking about there? He's talking about Jesus. And he's saying, in, in, in spite of everything that you have released now into the cosmos, I want you to know there is coming a day, many, many, many years from now. I give you this promise that from a woman will come a son. And he will come with the authority of the kingdom of God, and he will crush your head. Your power, your authority will be stripped from you, and the Son of God will begin to reinstate the rule of the kingdom of God and will begin to reinstate the authority that he gave to mankind at the very beginning of time. So I want you to imagine now all the way back to Adam, all the way back to the very first human, there has been this, this ache, this longing for this exact promise to be restored. Go with me to Isaiah chapter 9, the verse that we opened up our service with today, verse 6. For to us, a child is born, and to us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. The government of the kingdom of God will rest on the shoulders of Jesus, and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end, which tells us that when the kingdom of God comes in its fullness, it is going to extend all throughout the remainder of eternity. And he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it, upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on. And forever the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. I want you to imagine a life, a family, a marriage. I want you to imagine a business, a school, a society. I want you to imagine a church. I want you to imagine a small group. I want you to imagine finances, physical health, every area of the created order and your life in it underneath the full reign of the kingdom of God. This is what they were speaking to. And hundreds of years before Jesus arrived, 
Isaiah announced this prophetic word, and the people of Israel, again, they began to ache and long. When, oh God, will you come and do what you said that you were going to do? This carries over into the New Testament, and in the quiet lives of faithful people, we see that there is a longing. Go with me to Luke chapter 2. I'm going to talk with you probably at the beginning of the new year about a man by the name of Simeon. But for now, I want you to see how this fleshes out. I want you to see how the prophetic promise given in the garden, reinforced and reiterated through prophetic voices in, in the years of exile, I want you to see how this fleshes out in common, ordinary people. There's a man by the name of Simeon, and the scripture says that he was a faithful man. He was a righteous man. He was a devout man. And this is how this prophetic promise, this is how creating a culture of readiness in God manifests itself in the here and now. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was waiting. He was longing. He was hoping. He was living his life in accordance with a divine hope. You understand that? He was living his life in accordance, in alignment his life was synchronized. His life was centralized by a hope. He lived his life as if what Jesus said or what God said about Jesus was actually going to happen. His life came into agreement with the promise of God and the Holy Spirit rested on him. And it had to be revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Isn't that amazing? This is how this fleshes out in ordinary life. We learn how to wait on the Lord actively. We learn how to participate with his promise that he's coming again, which is a great tee up for us to transition now into learning how to be a people who wait for Christ's second coming. Go with me to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24 and Matthew chapter 25 are Jesus's last sermons that he gives in Matthew's gospel. And it's no mistake or it's no consequence that these last two sermons or these last four parables that he gives in these two chapters are actually given around the context of the end of the world. Beginning in Matthew chapter 24, we're going to read a little lengthy passage of scripture here. Beginning in verse 1. Jesus left the temple and he was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things? He asked. Truly I tell you. Not one stone here will be left on another, but every one of them will be thrown down. And as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? Question number one. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. Watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah, and they will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed, for such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. What does that sound like to you when you hear that? That sounds like now. And to be truthful, this has actually been the description of human history from the moment of Jesus' resurrection and ascension. Yes. 
There have been nations that rise against nations for the past 2,000 years. There have been wars and rumors of wars for the past 2,000 years. There have been earthquakes and famines for the past 2,000 years. And truthfully, to kind of quell some of the, the radical and extremist marks of, of end times fervor, we have been living in the end times since Christ's ascension. Amen. Right? So it's no mistake, beloved, that Jesus, the first thing out of Jesus' mouth, when they want to shift the conversation to talk about the end of the world, the very first thing that he says is, be on your watch, pay attention. And then he says, pay attention that no one deceives you. Pay attention that no one deceives you with false messianic messages. Now, at first glance, when you read this and you say, there are going to be people that are coming and posing as the Messiah, like immediately you think of cult leaders, right? You think of like David Koresh or you think of Jim Jones or you think of like, but I want you to dig down a little bit deeper and I want you to think about not just like cult, like those are easy to dismiss. Those are easy to discount. Most of us will sit in this room and be like, there's no way that I'm going to be duped by a false Messiah. But think about the spirit of false messianic messages, which essentially say this, right? Watch this. In the name of God, in my name, I want, I'm trying to put a fear inside of you in my name so that you will live in such a way of, of, of such paranoid, frenetic mind control. That's essentially what Jesus is saying here. You're being deceived by the nature of a message that is being given to you, and it's being given in my name. Let me just click this in a little bit more tightly. So when, and whenever there's a message that is given in the name of God that, that convinces us to put our trust in anything besides God. And that could be guns, and that could be government, and that could be our own wealth, that could be our own 401k, that could be our own charismatic personalities, that could be our own social network. I'm telling you, in the name of God, anything that says, put your trust in this, in the name of God, it is the spirit of a false messianic message. Like, you've got to hear that. And this is, this is coming to you straight from someone, you know, Oral Roberts University graduate and, like, faith prosperity preaching. Like, man, I, like, I believed that. But here's the thing. You have to understand. Jesus says, watch out that you don't get deceived, which means that any message of deception has enough truth. Like, oh, wait, I'm supposed to be blessed. Like, we're supposed to be free. We're supposed to be independent. We're supposed to, we're the greatest nation of the earth. Like, like, I'm supposed to be healed. Any message that comes to you in the name of God that somehow pulls your heart and your affection and your security and your trust away from God and in the name of God convinces you that the ends justifies whatever means it is not the spirit of Christ. You have to watch out for it. You have to pay attention. You have to be discerning of it. That's what Jesus is referring to here. Pay attention to any message that comes as a substitute to exclusive allegiance to Jesus and trust in Jesus. Go with me to Isaiah chapter 2. 
Jesus speaks about wars and rumors of wars and kingdoms rising up against kingdoms and nations rising up against nations. And to be honest with you, like when I think about that, when I think about geopolitical climates and conflicts and you know, you think about Iran and North Korea and China and Taiwan and Russia and Ukraine and where's all this going? Like there's a fervor in the air that puts a spirit of intimidation and fear inside of us. Jesus speaks to this. He's aware of this because Jesus is aware that when we're afraid, we're more susceptible to deception and control, right? We're more, we're more susceptible to extremism when there is a climate of fear that we're living in. And we are living in a climate of fear. Like we are living right here in the Matthew 24 hour. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1 through 5. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest, the most preeminent, the most powerful, the most beautiful, the most relevant of the mountains of the Lord. It will be exalted above the hills and all of the nations, the Gentiles, will stream to the mountain of God. This is, again, a prophetic word now that Isaiah is giving that speaks to the eschatological end times. Many people will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways so that we can walk in his paths. Friends, in the new creation, there is going to be a hunger. There is going to be a natural inclination to follow the righteous ways of God. The gravitational pull of men's hearts and the gravitational pull of society and the gravitational pull of the culture at large will not be away from God. It will become, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Let us encounter him. Let us meet him. Let us learn from him. Let us be shaped by who he is. This is going to be the tenor of the end times. This is going to be the tenor of Christ's return. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. And the law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. And look at this. Let me just re read that one more time. I went by really quickly. He will judge between the nations and he will settle disputes for many peoples. And they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. So I want you to see how these two scriptures, how they complement each other. So here, again, hundreds of years prior, Isaiah is looking to the time that Jesus is speaking to. And Isaiah is saying there is going to come a time when the Ukrainian the Russian they're going to be brothers. There is going to come a time where the North Korean and the South Korean, they are going to be sisters. There is going to come a time when geopolitical conflicts that have been forged over hundreds of years that have wrought genocide, that have brought on famine and plague and disaster and destruction and anger. He says that there's going to come a time when the judge of all the earth is going to settle and squash those things. And what's going to happen is, is that the, the, the deep animosity and enmity and broken relationships that exist on the natural human level, one with the, with the other, but also amongst nation states, it's going to be healed. Racism will not exist. Nazism will not exist. Fascism, fascism will not exist. Class warfare will not exist. Gender difference, it, none of that will exist. Because God comes to set all things right. 
and to bring a peace and a harmony into his good earth that was designed to be its original intent when God created it in the beginning. Matthew chapter 24, verse 8. Going back to Matthew 24, Jesus says, All of these things, these are the beginning of birth pangs. So when you see rumors of wars, when you see nations rise against nation, when you see famines and earthquake, when you see uh, the temperature of the climate, not, not, not literally, metaphorically, when you see the temperature, are you, are you trying to push global warming on us? No, when you, when you see you know, the, the global climate becoming so hostile, this is what Jesus says. This is just the beginning of birth pains. And then this is a nod to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Go with me if you would. Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. That's an Advent passage. For those of you right now who are suffering momentary, present Temporary struggles, suffering, setbacks, frustration, loss, grief. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying that's real. That's real. But I want you to know that beyond this, there is something coming beyond this. Beyond this brokenness, beyond this struggle, beyond this pain, beyond this injustice, beyond the the ache of the grief of loss. I want you to know there's a glory that's coming. Christ is coming. And when he is coming, all the sadness and all the sorrow and all the pain, it's going to make sense. It's going to be made right. For the creation itself waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. And brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up until the present time. If you think the world is beautiful now, and I happen to think that there is that, like our world, our planet is beautiful. Like one of my, just one of the things I love to do most is hike or go out to the ocean or retreat into the mountains or just. Just our planet is a beautiful planet. And our planet is beautiful while it's under the bondage of decay. Like, I want you to imagine that. Friends, a new creation is going to be glorious. And God's plan isn't to come just to, isn't to come just obliterate everything. God's plan is to come and make all things new. It's to take the good thing that he created it and to restore it and to essentially resurrect it into a state of beauty and glory that is unimaginable. Go with me to Matthew chapter 24, and I'm going to actually end on this. Matthew chapter 24. Eddie, would you come? I want us to go straight from this verse, and we're going to go back into that song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, just to get our hearts into that state of, oh God, we we long for you. Verse 9 in Matthew 24, then you will be handed over. Jesus, again, he's laying out the context of the end of the age. You will be handed over to be persecuted, and you'll be put to death. And you'll be hated by all nations because of me. And at that time, many will turn away from the faith, and they will betray, and they will hate each other. And many false prophets will appear, and they will deceive many people. 
Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. I want to go back to this. I'm going to read these next two verses, but I want us to go back to this. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the entire world as a testimony to the nations. And then the end will come. Let's go back to verse 12. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. How, how, do, you, how do you end this apocalyptic, messianic, anticipatory message? How, how do you end this? You end it right here. Friends, be careful, be careful that in the increase of wickedness that you and I do not allow our hearts to grow cold. Advent teaches us to be a people whose hearts burn with a holy fire for God. Because I'm here to tell you right now that if everything that Jesus promises us about his return is not true, it's all worthless. Let's do, let's like, let's cash in and let's go for it. You feel me? You know what I'm talking about? Like, let's just go for it. Let's just throw off restraint and let's party. But there is something, there is something that holds us. And you know what that is? It's the promise of his return. And when you read these parables, every one of these parables that follow in Matthew 24 and the next three in Matthew 25, they all speak to this, be faithful because I'm coming back. Do what's right because I'm coming back. And I end with the story. When I was a senior in high school, my dad was gone for almost an entire year. The first six months of my senior year of high school, he was gone to Kuwait. It was his last assignment as a major in the army. Six months. I was actually thinking about that during worship. As we were singing these songs about longing and expectation, and I was reminded, as an only child, as a, as a, as a young man who was in love with my father, he was gone for those six months. He would write me letters almost every day. I'd run to the mailbox, waiting for that handwritten letter from my dad. When my dad came back, he was only actually here for a short amount of time because when he retired from the military, he had to go get work again. And he was there probably for a period of two to three weeks, and then he moved to California. So my entire senior year, I lived without my dad. My dad said, hey, I'm going to California. I'm going to get work there. I'm going to find a place for us. But I'm letting you stay here, son, so that you can graduate in the school that you started in. But as soon as you graduate, I'm going to come back we're going to celebrate, and then we're going to move to California. You know what that little three-week window of time was? That little three-week window of time was, was a season of Advent, right? My dad came back. We enjoyed that, and then it was waiting again. It was longing again. And here's what I can tell you, that had my dad come back, and I had not been faithful in that season, if I had gotten into fights with my mom, if I had rebelled and just kind of done things my own way, that his return would have not have been a happy return, right? His return would have been fraught with not only a lot of disappointment, but a lot of hard discipline. And that's the spirit of Christ's return. Guys, listen, let's not get caught up in all of the peripheral fanfare. No one knows the date. No one knows the hour. 
only the Father does. Everything else that's trying to distract us from living faithfully, from living righteously, from living good and kind with our brother and our sister, it's a distraction, right? God says, be faithful, watch, and be ready because I'm coming again. And with that, I invite you to stand. And I want us to enter into the spirit of the song as Eddie leads us into O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and we'll come to the table. Jesus, we enter in right now. We enter into that spirit of longing anticipation. Lord, in some ways we are very familiar with that and in some ways we are completely ignorant of what it means to be a people who so desperately and deeply ache for our King's return. But I am asking you by the spirit of revelation I am asking today, O oh God, that you would awaken a holy longing inside of us. That you would awaken a bridal love inside of us. When will my lover God return? I'm asking, O oh God, that you would awaken first love inside of every single one of us. 
Lord, I'm asking today that for those that are in the room or online that are lost, that are far away from you, that Holy Spirit, you would reveal the gospel. That for God so loved that in spite of our willful rebellion, that your unlimited patience and your tender mercy was expressed in sending Jesus to us. That he came, born of a virgin, lived life as a man, and he laid his life down and was crucified in unjust, bloody execution for the sins of the world in order to inaugurate your kingdom and to make things right again and to bring us back into relationship with the Father. Holy Spirit, make this gospel clear and make it real and make it alive to every single one of us again. Friends, on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he sat amongst his closest friends and he inaugurated the beginning of Advent. He says, guys, I'm just, I'm just getting things started right now. I'm gonna forgive you of your sins. I'm gonna reconcile you back to the Father and then I'm going away. Friends, in that spirit of longing expectation, I want to invite you to the table. And as we receive the body and as we receive the blood of Jesus, our Savior, we're going to do it in the spirit of Advent together as we await for his second coming. Would you come to the table today? We welcome you.